Let's take our Bibles and turn again to John chapter 17. We've been looking at this great introduction to this prayer. We spent some time looking at the parties to the prayer, the Father and the Son. We looked at the the background to some of the language that we find in the prayer in what's known as the Pactum Salutis, that is the great pact of redemption or uh, covenant of redemption between the Father and the Son and the Spirit in eternity past before the universe was created, before anything was created. Then we looked at the meaning of this word glory that appears again and again in this passage, uh, throughout the prayer, in fact, but especially here at the beginning. What does it mean? What does glory mean? And now tonight, we come again to look at these verses and to look more deeply at what is said in this prayer. We're, We're conscious that there is an intimacy of relationship between the Father and the Son. Jesus has finished His farewell address to His disciples. He said, really, all that He's going to say to them before He goes to the cross. He's on His way to His arrest already. Judas Iscariot has betrayed Him already. There is being assembled a mob of soldiers and others who will come to arrest Him. That mob will be between about 500 and 1,000 people coming to arrest one man. That's all happening in the background. And he has one last gift for his church before he leaves the the world. This prayer, spoken out loud in the hearing of his apostles, for the church of God, that's for you and me to the end of history. And with so much weighing upon him, with so much pain and sorrow looming up for him on the horizon within hours of praying this prayer, it's important that we again look at what is uppermost in the mind of the Savior. What is on his mind? Well, we've seen this, and I don't apologize for repeating it. Here it is. He has the glory of his Father in his mind. The hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. He is preoccupied with the glory of God. He is preoccupied with worshiping God. After all, He has assumed our humanity. This has been His preoccupation throughout John's gospel. He has assumed our humanity, and in our humanity, He is concerned with what we as human beings should be concerned about. He is concerned to give glory to God, which in its fundamental sense means that we worship Him as God and that we acknowledge who He is. We've seen that in His earthly life, He is preoccupied with glorying God the Father. In fact, back in chapter 12, uh, before He has met with them in the upper room, he, He has prayed a prayer, Father, glorify Your name, and a voice comes from heaven responding to that. I've glorified it, and I will glorify it again. That has been His great preoccupation uh, in all of His self-humbling, in all of His self-abasement. He has longed that His Father 
would be seen to be great and glorious in the eyes of men and women. And this comes as a rebuke, really, to us. This comes as a rebuke to us sometimes in our motivation even for coming to church. It it rebukes us for our intrinsic self-awareness and self-focus and self-interest. That even when it comes to Christianity, sometimes we, we are coming looking for what we can get, what we can take away as we come to church even, or what we can learn, or what we can, what we can put into practice, or some new set of rules that, we can, that, we can, that, that will help us in our everyday lives, or for some happiness and experience of happiness that we, we're not finding anywhere else. You know, I've tried everything else. I'm going to try Christianity now. What can it do for me that nothing else is doing for me? And even when we sin, a few breaches of the law of God here, a few failures there, we fail to see that what sin is ultimately is that it is a failure to glorify God as God. And the Lord Jesus, in His preoccupation uh, with the glory of God, rebukes that self-focus that we have so often. That is not to say that there's nothing in it for us, but it is to say that first of all, first of all, we are here for God's glory. We exist for God's glory and for God's glory alone. It is to me the most amazing thing that just recently as as a, a a session we We've adopted a new strap line, a vision statement, which is a text of Scripture that's summarized in two phrases, exalting His name, proclaiming His Word. Isn't it great to have a church that sees as its vision, first of all, the glory of God? So here is our Lord Jesus, and that's His preoccupation. And we've heard Him allude in this prayer, in these opening words, to the work of the Trinity before all worlds existed. That it was the Trinity, before there were angels, archangels, other beings, or a universe, or worlds, or people on those worlds, if there's more than one. Before there was anything, there was the triune Godhead. God as He is in Himself is not lonely. God as He is in Himself is triune. God has from all eternity had someone to love. God has from all eternity enjoyed the most perfect communion and union within Himself. He is not a monad. God is Trinity. He is one in three and three in one. And within the Godhead, there was formed this great plan of salvation. This is what is in Jesus' mind. He's going to be praying for His own people. And so He has this in mind. And you can see as you glance at these five verses, references to this great plan of salvation. In the phrase, for example, the hour has come. In His phrase of having been given authority over all flesh, of His mission to give eternal life to those whom the Father has given to Him, and of His having accomplished the work necessary for this to happen in our lives. This is the grand subject that is on our Lord's mind next to the glory of God. And at this crucial moment of His life, He is thinking of the joy set before Him 
of bringing many sons and daughters into glory with him. That's what's on his mind and heart. And I do not hesitate for a moment to say to us this evening that our problems would shrink and our hearts would be comforted and our fears would be banished if we thought a bit more about this great salvation which preoccupied the thinking of our Lord Jesus as he goes to the cross. So let me unpack for a moment this great plan of salvation or redemption and, and what's involved in it just from these five verses. First of all, in the plan of redemption, the purpose was conceived and agreed within the triune Godhead. Again and again, we're reminded that salvation is all of God. And when we say all of God, we are to think not of three gods, three minds, three wills, three powers, but of one God sharing one mind, one will, and one power. Within the triune Godhead, there was conceived this plan of salvation. And within the triune Godhead, there was there were various roles carved out so that each member of the Godhead had specific responsibilities pertaining to our salvation. It was to the Father, given to the Father, that He would be the great sender, sender, that the Son would be the one who would be sent, and that the Holy Spirit, proceeding from the Father and the Son, would support the Son in His humanity in doing the work that He'd been sent to do, and that He would then, after His resurrection, apply the effects of that work to the lives of individual human beings. This is the way in which the work was carved out. Each member of the Godhead acting in concerted unity together for the salvation of people. Now, isn't that an amazing thing? This is before there's a universe made, before there are angels and archangels made, before there is anything other than God Himself. The plan of redemption is put into place. Put into place by the triune God. Remember the old maxim of, uh, I think, Athanasius who said that when we think of the God of the Bible, we are to think of God as one and three. We think of the three, but we can't think of the three without thinking of the one. We can't think of the one without thinking of the three. One God, three persons. And in the Bible, you find the word God is used when speaking about the Father. The word God is used when speaking about the Son. The word God is used when speaking about the Spirit. And the word God is used when speaking of Father, Son, and Spirit together. In the plan of redemption, the purpose was conceived and agreed within the triune Godhead. Secondly, in the plan of redemption, the Father has the task of planning the redemption. He is the planner. We sometimes read in the Bible things like this. In Corinthians, for example, God was in Christ, reconciling the world to Himself. Or in John chapter 3, verse 16, that we just had sung to us by Stainer's magnificent, in His magnificent crucifixion, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. So God is the planner of our salvation. 
So never again let anyone say to us that somehow or other Jesus came into the world to extract from God something God was reluctant to give. God the Father is behind this plan. He conceived this plan. He put this plan together. That was part of His task. And you can see that's what Jesus is alluding to in verse 2. The Father has given him authority over all flesh. The Father has done this. And he reports on his work, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Verse 4. The plan has been put in place by God the Father. And this plan is exhaustive. This plan covers all the bases. This plan does everything that's necessary to win you and to bring you into the glory of God. Everything that is necessary to do that great work has been planned by the Father. Not only has He planned what should happen, but He's even planned when it should happen. That's why the Lord Jesus refers to the hour has come in verse 1. Father, the hour has come. In other words, not only did you plan what was going to happen, but there was a timetable. Things had to happen to that timetable that you laid out from before the foundation of the world. He wrote the script, and he wrote the timings for the script, so that everything that happens according to the script happens exactly to the minute. That's what God the Father has done. The hour has come. This great God has planned the history of redemption, including all the various things in your life that have brought you to this moment and has timed it down to the nanosecond. Isn't that an amazing thing to think about? We read about this, for example, in Galatians 4, that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive adoption of sons. There is nothing accidental. There is nothing random about what God does for sinners. It's entirely planned by God. So the Apostle Paul in, in Ephesians, he, he, he thrills at this thought. He, he enlarges about this thought. He kind of repeats it in a whole variety of ways when he talks about God acting according to the purpose of His will. Or God revealing the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ. Or when He talks about the purpose of Him who works all things, all things according to the counsel of His will. God is working the plans out according to what He has established in His mind before all eternity. You get the idea, don't you? And now the Son has come to this hour. This is His hour. This is what He has to do in this hour. This is the hour of His crucifixion, His resurrection, His ascension, and His enthronement. This is the hour planned by the Father in which the Son has something to do for our salvation. A plan that God conceived. And throughout the history of 
throughout the history of redemption, beginning with Adam's fall, and then the promises made to Adam, and the flood, and then the calling of Abraham, and then the deliverance of Israel out of Egypt, and then their being sent into exile and returned from exile. Throughout the whole story, everything has been happening according to this timetable and this plan of God. Now, I want you to pause. Hold that thought for a moment. Press pause. And think about that just for a moment. Because isn't it true sometimes we get all worked up about God's timing of things? We wonder, why does God not intervene? Why does God not do something now about this evil or that evil that's going on in the world? We look at the church and we think, why is the church the way it is. Why is the church not more effective in the world? Why does it look so weak? Why is it so disobedient? Why is it so persecuted? Why does he allow this? Why does he allow these scholars to come out with all this nonsense that they, that they put into the minds of our, of our seminarians? And why does he allow these liberal people to penetrate in the highest echelons of our seminaries and to spread their obnoxious, demonic infections into the minds of those who are training for the ministry? Why does God not put an end to the violence against women or children or young people? Why does God not intervene? Have you ever wondered those things? Why doesn't Jesus just come back and put it all right? You've ever thought of those things, brother or sister? You're not alone. And Jesus, on one occasion, he made it very clear. The Father's got it all timed. Jesus said, the Father knows the time of my second coming. I don't even know that, but the Father knows the right time. And when the right time comes, it will happen. And you better know that God knows best when that time is. Here's how Paul puts it in his language. God has a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. Isn't that encouraging? Things are not out of control. Brother, sister, things are not out of the control of your heavenly Father. Thirdly, in the plan of redemption... The Lord Jesus was appointed, to use Paul's language, the heir of all things. In fact, the universe was made by him and for him. John tells us that in chapter 1. But there's a reference to it here, actually, in verse 2. You have given the Son authority over all flesh. Now, what does that mean? Don't answer back. I answer my own questions. It means that the Lord Jesus is responsible for everything regarding human life and human beings in the world. He is appointed, he has authority over all flesh, it says, that is, over all people. He was appointed the head and representative for earth and its peoples. So we can say, for example, in the history of the world, all the interactions that you find in the Old Testament of God with people, whether it was God walking with Adam and even talking to him in the garden, 
Whether it was God coming and speaking to Abraham in his tent out there in, in Canaan. Whether it was God coming to Abraham or to Moses rather at the burning bush. Or God coming and speaking as the commander of the Lord's armies to Joshua before the battle of Jericho. In all of those occasions where God comes and speaks to people, it is always, always the Son. God the Son who comes. He is the one given the authority over all flesh. He is, he is responsible for all the dealings with humanity. He is responsible. He is authority over everything that's going on on this planet. He has the power of the keys in Revelation. He is the one who comes to open the seal that unfolds the ongoing history of what's going on in the world even to this moment. It's all in the hands of the Son. He has authority over all flesh. He's in charge of history. Right here, I forget the number of my points. So we'll go to the next one. In the plan of redemption, it is the Father who chooses a people and gives them to Christ. Look again at verse 2. You've given him authority over all flesh. Now he makes a distinction. God, Christ has authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all those whom you have given him. So there's a distinction. There's all flesh, and there are those from all flesh, who have been given to the Son by the Father. The Father chooses them. He gives them as a love gift to His Son. Christ has all power and authority over all human beings, but He has among human beings a special people. Special. In many ways, but not special because they're better than other people, simply because they've been chosen by the Father and given to the Son, who in turn gives them eternal life. Now, Jesus has this very much in his mind. If we ever get to read the rest of the chapter, you'll find that out. As he distinguishes in the rest of the prayer between the world on the one hand and those you have given me on the other. And he says, now that he's going to the cross, he is thinking of these people that you have given to him out of the world. Not the world, but them. And he consecrates himself to the work of saving these people. Now, if you're a believer tonight, then know this. You are a believer because God the Father, before He made the world, chose you in Christ. Isn't that an amazing thought? That, that this, I remember as a boy coming coming to the realization that this Bible taught this stuff. I was never taught it in church. When I tried to have conversations with people in the church I went to, which was a good church in many ways, nobody wanted to talk to me about it. But it overwhelmed me, the idea that before God made the universe, He had chosen me in Christ. This is one of the things Jesus has been talking about throughout John's gospel. Earlier on, He'd said this, all the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me I will never cast out, for I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. 
And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. In fact, Paul says in Ephesians 1, we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Who chose you? The Father chose you. There's no grounds for any believer thinking that God the Father is an ogre or a tyrant, that He's like any abusive father you know of or have experienced yourself. This Father chose you before the foundation of the world, and He delights to give you to His Son, who grants you eternal life as a gift. That brings us to the next point. In the plan of salvation, the Father gives the Son the specific task of accomplishing our redemption. I don't want to go into this too much tonight because it takes more time than we have. But let me put it like this. John's gospel, throughout John's gospel, we have Jesus consciously doing and saying things which the Father has given him to do and to say. And it's an amazing thing that that should be because John begins by reminding us that Jesus is God, that Jesus has always been face to face with the Father. There's always been this, this close proximity, this great intimacy, this union of nature and of substance between the Father and the Son. I and the Father are one, he says later. And yet, voluntarily, the Son puts Himself into a covenant of works relationship with the Father, undertaking to do the work that we haven't done and cannot do on our behalf, in our place, for our salvation. Well, I'm not going to expand on that this evening. Let me go to the next point. In the plan of redemption, God intends the Son to give eternal life to His people. That's what He says. Look at verse 2. Since you have given Him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. We've been hearing about eternal life throughout John's gospel. Beginning in chapter 1, we were told that to all who received Him, to those who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Born of God, given new life by God, eternal life. What kind of life is eternal life? I have come, Jesus says on another occasion in John's Gospel, chapter 10, I have come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. The eternal life that He brings is, has a quality to it that is not the quality of the life that you and I have right now. The life we have right now is temporal and temporary. It's earthly and it's not going to last one out of one of everybody in this room is going to die unless Jesus comes back. The only question is, when will you die? How soon will you die? Not whether you will die. That's the reality. It is appointed unto men once to die, 
and after death, judgment. There's the reality. But Jesus comes to give eternal life. What does that mean? It means in the words of a song, a hymn that we sing sometimes here, that we shall never die. I wonder if you, I don't know if you're aware of that song that we sing, immortal honors dwell on Jesus' head. And one of the phrases in it is that he will never let me die. I wonder if you've wondered, can I really sing those words? Well, of course you can. Because you will not die. Your body will die. You will slough off this mortal coil. Your body will die. But you will not die. You have eternal life. For you, death is gain. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. One day you will hear an announcement here or see it in the newspaper saying that, that Liam Gallagher is now dead. Some of us have been waiting for that for a long time. What a relief it will be. He is now dead. I want you to know on that day, I will be more alive than I am tonight. More alive than you've ever seen me. Because I have eternal life. As the gift of the Son, I have eternal life. You're a believer this evening. You have eternal life. Isn't that an amazing thing? And it's God's intention that the Son gives you eternal life. You see, so often when we're shaken in our faith or we're struggling with the accusations of the devil, when we underestimate the blessing of eternal life, when we look superficially at spiritual things, it's because we've not stopped to think. We've not stopped to think and reflect on what this prayer is teaching That's why this chapter is probably my favorite chapter in all of the Bible. God knows you. God loves you. God has an eternal plan for you. He is interested in you. He made the universe so that you could come into existence. He planned and plotted your genetic makeup, your ancestry, the influences and circumstances of your life. He made clear a path for you to encounter the gospel so that you would come to eternal life through faith in His Son. And there was no slip up any way along that way from before He made the universe to this point this evening. And the Father did all that for you, believer, for you. And He gave authority to His Son to give you eternal life. He gave His Son the authority to adopt you into the family, make you a child of God. What does that tell me as we come to a close this evening? It tells me that my salvation is entirely secure, that my eternal destiny is entirely secure, that where I will be 10 billion years from tonight is entirely secure. My life is hid with Christ in God beyond the reach of harm. I am in not only my Savior's hands, I'm in my Father's hands, and no one can pluck me out of that hand. No one. There is no accusation of hell that will ever stand against what God has done for me in Christ. 
There is no work of man, no terrorizing of man that can ever separate me from Christ. There is no power on earth or hell or sky that can in any way come between me and that destiny that has been planned from before the foundation of the world. It means that I can be sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will ever be able to separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus my Lord. Brother, sister, that is your confidence. That is your assurance. That is your security this evening. Take it. Take it. Go out into this week, whatever this week throws at you, and find your security in God, in the knowledge that you have been loved by God Himself. From before the foundation of the world. Do you know what that means? He loved you before you sinned. He loved you before you blew it big time. He loved you before you made a mess. He loved you before you failed those exams. He loved you before you failed in your career. He loved you before everything else that's gone wrong or you've done wrong or has happened to you that's been wrong. He loved you first. And He plotted to bring you to His glory. He planned to bring you into His presence. He planned to give you eternal life in His Son. Hallelujah. Amen. Father, we thank You that Your love for us is so amazing, so transcendent of space and time and history, and that You've set Your love upon us Tonight we pray, Lord, we pray for people who might be here this evening who don't know that for themselves. We pray that that you would overwhelm them with the sense of your love for them and of your plans for them, that you brought them here tonight to hear the good news of the gospel. Pray that you would open their eyes to see it, their ears to hear it, their wills to respond to it, and their hearts to embrace it. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.